Hi everyone, it's Lou here. Just a quick message to let you all know that I've started a petition and the petition relates to this episode, which is about bringing collaborative, proactive solutions to Australian schools, starting with New South Wales. The petition is called Aussie School System Fails Vulnerable Kids. We Need Collaborative, Proactive Solutions. And you can find the petition on change.org. I will leave all the details and a link for the petition in the show notes. And if you're on the Facebook page and on many other pages where it's being shared, you will see the link there as well. I really need you to share the petition and obviously sign it. It's gone pretty much viral or what I would consider to be viral and we are well and truly heading for 5,000 signatures as I speak to you today. This will lead to politicians sitting up and taking notice of us as parents of neurodivergent students in the Australian school system. And the idea here is to let them know that we are not only asking for CPS to be introduced to Australian schools, we are demanding for that to be the case. So please get behind this petition, please sign it and share it. And now, let's move to this very exciting episode of Square Peg Round Hole. I would like to acknowledge that this podcast meeting is being held on the traditional lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respect to Elders, both past, present and future, and to welcome you to this new episode for podcast Square Peg Round Hole. Welcome to Square Peg Round Hole, the podcast where we discuss diversity and how to embrace our neurodivergent children at home, at school and in the workplace. When I started this podcast, I could only dream of interviewing the world-leading experts whose work defines best practice when it comes to supporting our kids in the most neurodivergence-affirming ways. The interview I did last year with Mona Delahook was a highlight for me, and today's interview is bound to be another. As you know, I've been doggedly pursuing an understanding of the methods and evidence for the most successful ways for schools and parents to foster inclusion, which means always acknowledging the social model of disability. I've made a tenacious commitment to driving the move away from behaviourism in Australian education settings. The episode with Mona is important in this context, so if you haven't listened to it yet, please go back and hear her fabulous words of wisdom. But today's guest is an even bigger voice, a giant in this field. Child psychologist and author, Dr Ross Green is a household name to square peg families across the world. His New York Times best-selling books include The Explosive Child, Raising Human Beings and Lost at School. Dr Green developed the groundbreaking Collaborative Proactive Solutions or CPS model in the 1990s and founded the not-for-profit Lives in the Balance which distributes CPS resources for free and advocates 
for a paradigm shift to ways of supporting students and managing behaviour that are non-punitive, non-exclusionary, relationship building and communication enhancing. I've been working towards today for a long time and my determination has paid off. I've secured a meeting to introduce Dr Green to the New South Wales Department of Education and staff from the New South Wales Education Minister's Office. Dr Green will explain CPS to them and advocate for New South Wales to move beyond behaviourism and towards neurodiversity affirming teaching practices. If New South Wales implemented this, we'd be the first state in Australia to take this huge step, which would bring students and families improved access to learning and a sense of safety and belonging. Dr Green and I will argue passionately in favour of this change, but we need your help. After listening to this interview, please take action. Write to Minister Sarah Mitchell. Just email office at mitchell.minister.nsw.gov.au. A link will also be in the show notes. If you don't speak up, you cannot expect the change to happen, as our politicians will only listen when we yell loud and clear. And now to the interview with Dr. Green. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Ross Green. Thank you for inviting me to do this with you. Can't believe you're here and I'm talking to you. Thank you very much for being here and it's your evening. So we're going to get stuck right into this now so that you can go on with the rest of your night. Okay, so let's start. There's no way we can cover the full scope of your work in this short interview. In Australia right now, there's lots of discussion about inclusive education, but most educators here aren't familiar with your work. We want them to be. So I'm going to focus us on the use of CPS in education settings today. So my first question for you is, you trained as a child psychologist. Can you give me a brief overview of your career path and what led you to develop the CPS model? Well, that's a long career path. I'll try to be brief. The first thing I should say is that I was trained as a behaviorist. So I was trained to focus on concerning behavior and on strategies aimed at modifying that behavior. And I did not stick with that very long. I started noticing that a lot of the kids who were spending an enormous amount of time in timeout at home and in getting stickers or not getting stickers for their behaviors, or getting detentions and suspensions and other punitive exclusionary disciplinary procedures at school. A lot of those kids weren't benefiting from those procedures. And so the first thing I started doing was paying a lot more attention to what the research was beginning to tell us about kids with concerning behaviors. And what it was telling us is that these kids are lacking crucial skills, especially in the realms of flexibility, adaptability, frustration tolerance, problem solving, emotion regulation. And that was a bit of a revelation to me because I had been trained to believe that concerning behavior was caused by passive, permissive, inconsistent, non-contingent, inept parenting practices. And if it was those inept parenting practices that were causing concerning behavior, then those rewards and punishments would make a great deal of sense, but that's not what the research was telling us. It's lagging skills, not lagging motivation. 
not necessarily inept parenting practices either. So I started thinking, well, so what do, you, what do you do instead of using rewards and punishments to try to modify kids' behaviors? And I got to tell you, I wasn't finding much. So I got a little creative, started trying some things out with some of the kids and families that I was working with and haven't recommended that a kid spend time and time out in a good 30 years at this point. <laughs> um, nor have I recommended sticker charts or clips or um, any form of rewards and punishments, tokens, trinkets for the same amount of time. What became clear is that focusing on behavior is focusing on the wrong thing. What we should be focused on instead is the problems that are causing those behaviors and trying to solve them. So this is a shift away from modifying behavior and a shift in the direction of solving problems. Next question, how should those problems be solved with the kid as full partner? In other words, collaboratively and far preferably not in the heat of the moment, um, proactively. And so I've spent a good part of the last 30 years getting caregivers out of the heat of the moment by helping them identify a kid's lagging skills and unsolved problems so that the entire enterprise of helping these kids can almost be exclusively proactive and once again, helping people move away from behavior modification and toward solving problems with kids collaboratively and proactively. And that's the career arc. <laughs> well, thank goodness you had that, that thought and that realization. It was pretty hard to miss because mm. I was working with a lot of caregivers who were sort of stumbling into my office every week saying to me, this is going to work, right? These timeouts I've been holding my kid in, locking my kid in their room, removing everything from their room so as to remove all reinforcers, all these sticker charts. Um, my attitude now is not only are those the wrong way to go, they're focused on completely the wrong thing. Right. Well, let's explore that further. You know, it never fails to amaze me how much when I hear that ex that expressed that way, it just it just brings it all rushing back to me, my own experience with my own son, as I did all those things. So I wanted now to please, if you could just in a nutshell, explain what CPS is. You've started, so if you can just sort of, you know, give us a brief description of what it is. It's basically what I just said, and that is instead of trying to modify kids' behavior, and in this model we think of behavior as simply the signal, the mm -hmm. fever the means by which a kid is communicating that there's an expectation the kid is having difficulty meeting. In this model, we're not focused on the behaviors that are being caused by those unmet expectations. We're focused on the unmet expectations themselves. And in this model, we call those unmet expectations unsolved problems, otherwise known as problems that have yet to be solved. Yeah. Also known as problems that are waiting to be solved. What we're doing in collaborative and proactive solutions, once again, relying very heavily on the research that has accumulated over the last 40 to 50 years on kids with concerning behaviors, telling us this is about lagging skills, not lagging motivation. We are spending a great deal of time teaching caregivers 
how to identify lagging skills and unsolved problems and helping kids and caregivers solve those problems together collaboratively and proactively. In a nutshell, that's the model. Now, the nutshell part doesn't necessarily speak to what a massive paradigm shift is. This is for many, many, many people who have been focused primarily on a kid's concerning behavior and implementing strategies that are primarily geared toward modifying that behavior. That's not what you're doing in the CPS model. Again, you're constantly thinking, you know, as long as people accept it's a problem, then we can get, get somewhere. If it's, if it's not accepted that it's a problem and that's an intentional behaviour, then that's going to make it harder. So most schools in Australia, like in the US, use an approach called positive behaviour support or positive behaviour for learning to manage student behaviour. I've taken this description from a paper you co-authored and I quote, the model provides clear behavioural expectations, for example, be respectful, be kind, be safe for all students and involves the teaching and reteaching of these expectations and the use of rewards to encourage positive behaviours. It operates on the belief that appropriate behaviour can be taught to all students. In Australia, most teachers use token systems, as you've mentioned, such as merits and demerits and dojo points. What are the problems and limitations of these systems and PBL in general? Well, you just said the word behavior about eight times. Yes. <laughs> so here in the United States, what we call PBIS, uh, Positive Behavior Interventions and Supports, is for many people just a structure for organizing special education supports for kids or additional supports for kids. It doesn't have to be special education and making sure that expectations in schools are clear. And if that's all there was to it, I guess we'd be fine. Lots of schools have implemented collaborative and proactive solutions within those PBIS structures. And PBIS refers often involves three tiers. Tier one is what we're doing with every kid. Tier two is what we're doing for the kids who didn't benefit from tier one. Tier three is what we're doing with the kids who didn't benefit from, from tier two. So that's fine, I suppose, as an organizational structure. I don't necessarily have a great deal of use for it, but many people do. So that's okay. It's just a structure. The problem is the B word, P-B-I-S. Mm. Um, regrettably, um, most of the schools that are implementing P-B-I-S are still focused on behavior. They are checking in and checking out about behavior. They are teaching and reteaching behavior. The expectations they're talking about are behavioral expectations. And now we just veered off the road. What we should be talking about are expectations kids are having difficulty meeting of the type that cause concerning behaviors. Difficulty completing the double digit division problems on the worksheet in math. Difficulty coming back into the classroom after recess, difficulty sitting next to Susie during circle time. Those are the kinds of expectations we're talking about in this model. And those differ from what I find a lot of people are talking about when they're talking about PBIS. They're usually talking about behavioral expectations, and there's a very big difference there. If you're still focused on behavioral expectations, then consistent with what you also said, 
you're going to be focused on using rewards to promote positive behaviors. But if that's all you're doing, you are never identifying, you are never solving the problems that are causing those behaviors. And better yet, if you are identifying and solving the problems that are causing those behaviors, you don't need to promote positive behavior because it's only unsolved problems that cause concerning behavior. Solved problems don't. So for me, it's a fairly simple equation here. Yeah, you could try to modify the behavior and not even know about or touch the problems that are causing those behaviors, or you could identify and solve the problems that are causing those behaviors and the concerning behaviors that were being caused by those unsolved problems will subside. It's a bit of a two-for-one sale when you're solving problems collaboratively and proactively with kids. Okay, thank you. We will get. We will talk a little bit more about some of the, the triggers and the examples, and I have an example question for you now. This is something that comes up a lot. Let's consider the kind of low-level disruptive behaviour which some kids exhibit with high frequency in classrooms, like calling out and getting out of their seats. How would PBL and CPS respond to this dif- differently? Uh, CPS would engage the kid in a dialogue. We call that dialogue Plan B, mm-hmm. the problem-solving discussion, so that we can understand, based on information the kid is providing to us, what's making it hard for them to raise their hand before ask, answering questions, what's making it hard for them to stay in their seat. So we are very dependent on the kid as the source of information about what's making it hard for them to meet those expectations. And the kid would be fully engaged in the process of coming up with solutions that address the factors that are getting in their way. I find that with PBIS, which is of course an offshoot of applied behavior analysis, PBIS comes from the behavior analytic tradition. One of the biggest differences between behavior analytic tradition and CPS is that many behavior analysts, not all, aren't relying on the kid at all to figure out what's making it hard for the kid to meet the expectation. That information often goes missing because the adults are busy figuring it out on their own. And the kid is not involved at all in discussion of potential solutions. The adults are figuring that out all on their own as well. So generally speaking, those solutions are frequently imposed on kids and kids are being rewarded for enacting those adult-imposed solutions. In the CPS model, we call that plan A. And we don't recommend it. There's no reason that the kid should not be fully engaged in the problem-solving process. No reason the kid should not be our problem-solving partner. And one of the biggest causes of concerning behavior in kids with concerning behaviors is adults using plan A, imposing solutions on problems they don't know anything about yet because they were very busy figuring it out all on their own. In that tradition, I find that adults have way too much faith in their own intuition, in their own ability to figure out what the environmental factors are that are causing the behavior. In the CPS model, our number one source of information is the kid. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. Do you think people are afraid of having that conversation with the child or that the child won't be able to? Is it an ableist thing where they don't, they don't believe the child is going to be able to articulate what is going on? Sometimes. I mean, I hear that sometimes. But to tell you the truth, mostly I think this comes down to training. I think that many of us, me included way back when, were trained to figure it out on our own. And we were trained in strategies that we then imposed because we were told that they would work. And by the way, rewarding and punishing is an evidence-based approach. So, um, but, but here's what I've been saying about that. But first of all, no denying that, but also no denying the liabilities of that approach. One of them being that the treatment effects tend to dissipate once the program is removed. Yeah. But the more important piece here is that I think the biggest issue is training. If you're trained to focus on behavior and trained in rewarding and punishing to modify behavior, that's what you're going to use. And it might never occur to you that the kid might be a tremendously useful source of information on what's getting in their way and that the kid can be engaged in the problem-solving process as a full partner. It would never occur to you. Quite frankly, if you're trained in collaborative and proactive solutions, you probably aren't thinking very much about behavior anymore, and you're probably not thinking very much about reward and punishment anymore either. So I think it's mostly training. And if you're trained in figuring it out on your own, then you probably have very little experience in talking with kids about difficulties they're experiencing. Now you might be scared because you've never done it before, but if you try it and get some guidance on how to do it, you won't be scared for long. And along that line, can you can we talk about triggers? Do all behaviours have a trigger? In busy classrooms with 30 kids, can teachers be expected to see all these triggers? Well, I tend not to use the word trigger because it makes it sound like it's not so predictable. Mm-hmm. Here's what I know. These unsolved problems are right in front of us every minute, every hour, every day. The reason there are so many of them is because that's not what we've been paying attention to. And because that's not what we've been paying attention to, we haven't really been focused on solving problems. We've been focused on what we have been paying attention to, behaviors and trying to modify them. No wonder the pile of unsolved problems is so massive in a classroom with 30 kids. My attitude, no time like the present. If all we do is continue focus on focusing on behavior and modifying it, the pile of unsolved problems will simply continue to grow. But those unsolved problems are right in front of us. They are just as noticeable, just as observable as the concerning behaviors that they are causing. The trick is to focus on them and get the problem-solving process rolling because I can't think of a single problem that a reward or a punishment will solve. So I guess we could keep doing what we're doing and keep saying that there's 30 kids and this is overwhelming, or we could start identifying lagging skills and unsolved problems and start solving problems. We're still going to be overwhelmed in the beginning. This is, this is not like a magic wand, but at least over time, We'll have many problems that we have solved now in the rearview mirror. We will have many kids in the class who are now doing a whole lot better than they would have been if all we were focused on was their concerning behaviors. We have begun 
somebody's got to begin. Um, I think there's that famous proverb, if not me, who? If not now, when? Yeah, I like that because I, I always just say, well, I'm going to do it then. <laughs> I'm not waiting around for others to do it. I mean, what you just said then is also, and I'm thinking of another saying, the definition of insanity is just doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. Correct. Now, if we make sure that people have the tools to do something differently, and that's the key, right? Um, I don't fault anybody for not knowing what to do differently if what they're doing now isn't working. We've got to make sure that people have the training to do things differently, or quite frankly, we're going to keep losing kids. Right. And that is the bit where I really hope that the New South Wales Department of Education are listening to those words because that is their responsibility to provide this training for teachers, which again leads to my next question. The pandemic has taken a huge toll on teachers and they were already overworked, underpaid and undervalued before COVID hit. If our education departments were to bring in CPS, would that be just another program teachers have to learn, adding to that burden? Not if we do it the right way. I think many classroom teachers have suffered through many trainings, many initiatives that they felt didn't do them any good. Often those trainings are implemented without an eye toward sustainability. They aren't implemented with an eye toward what's realistic in terms of implementation and how fast it can go. Often many initiatives are a flash in the pan, here today, gone tomorrow. Um, we won't implement CPS under those circumstances. So we aren't going to let this fail because we're going to make sure that it's being trained in the right way, in a way that isn't onerous, in a way that is respectful of what actually goes on in schools. But here's the deal. Teachers were underpaid and overworked and overburdened pre-pandemic. They are going to be underpaid, overworked, and overburdened post-pandemic. I think the CPS model at least offers them some relief. It's not going to pay them more money but it can change what they're dealing with in their classrooms and how they're going about doing it. And I think that that's a major benefit, even if CPS isn't going to get them paid any more than they're being paid now. True. I mean, we can't control that. So I'm sure that they will welcome it. But anyway, that's, that's yet to be discussed further. So one of the key barriers to progressive approaches to behaviour management in Australia is the teachers' unions who block attempts at reform because they claim removing restrictive practices, detentions and suspensions would leave them no options and put teachers' safety at risk. What would you say to the unions to reassure them? Well, if it were true that there were no options, they'd be right. At least they have something that's not, at least they have something to do even if it's not working. The the, the idea is not to remove what's not working and replace it with nothing. The goal is to remove what's not re working and replace it with something that will work better. So I think this may actually be more of a failure of imagination. Yeah, if all you know is, if, if all you, I'm just going to pick an analogy here. If the only note thing you know to eat is ground beef, 
and it's ground beef every day. And somebody says, you shouldn't be eating ground beef anymore. It's bad for you. What are you going to say? What else am I going to eat? Uh, if I don't eat, if I don't eat, I'm going to starve. If I don't eat ground beef, which is all I know to eat, it's going to be trouble. Mm. Perhaps we can introduce you to uh, chicken or even vegetables or fruits. There are other options besides ground beef to eat. So then I'm, this is not me disparaging ground beef, of course. It's just an analogy. <laughs> so not wishing to offend anybody's sensibilities here, but you get the idea. Yeah, right? absolutely. The idea yeah. is not to take away what isn't working and replace it with nothing. The idea is to replace it with something that will work better. That requires training, open-mindedness. I personally think that the training, which first of all, isn't likely to cost very much, will come back to us mm. in terms of dollars no longer being spent on the kids who are spending the most money on. So I don't tend to worry about that part. This is all about, let's use our imaginations. What would things look like if we were helping our students with concerning behavior better than we're helping them now? And the statistics tell us we're not helping them very well now. Let's put our heads together. Let's use our imaginations. Let's take evidence-based approaches that have been shown to dramatically reduce suspension, detention, expulsion, restraint, seclusion. Let's um, take a look at those and let's see if we can make things better for our most vulnerable kids and for the classroom teachers and paraprofessionals who are working with them. Well, I'm so glad you said that because I think that, well, I know that that is the major objection of the unions is that they feel that they are having their their last resort removed with no solution provided or no alternative provided to them. So I know you wouldn't know that, but um, but your answer has answered that for them. So hopefully that will make them happy too. <laughs> There's a lot of schools that used to use a lot of detention and suspension and restraint and seclusion, mm. and those numbers have either been dramatically reduced or completely eliminated. And I can tell you, they don't miss those practices. They are having trouble imagining what life could look like without them. That's wow. all. Oh, giving me so much hope. I, ho I hope they're listening as well. Wow. Awesome. Well, we're going to get to that, to some of the data behind CPS in a, in a moment. Just a couple more questions. How does CPS support autistic students, students with ADHD, and students who have experienced complex trauma specifically? And how does CPS help to get school refusers back in the doors? Um, I'll answer the last question first. Difficulty coming to school is an unsolved problem. Mm -hmm. As with any unsolved problem, we need to find out what's getting in the kid's way. And I promise you, something's getting in the kid's way. Now, we adults could sit around guessing. We adults could sit around theorizing. We adults could, adults could try to reward the kid for coming to school. Uh, we could try to punish the kid for not coming to school, right? Whatever's getting in the kid's way will not be addressed by a reward and will not be addressed by a punishment. And our guessing and theorizing is not the best use of our time. We, our time would be far better spent engaging the kid in helping us understand what's getting in the way of them coming to school. There's always something getting in the way of a kid coming to school. And I don't even wanna guess what it could be. I, I, we could spend the next 
three hours telling you what I've heard kids say who are having difficulty coming to school, but it's different for every kid, so that wouldn't be the best use of our time either. The trick is to engage the kid and find out. And once you find out, engage the kid in coming up with a solution. School refusal, difficulty coming to school is no different in terms of how we're going to approach it than any other unsolved problem. That leads us to some of the diagnoses that you mentioned. Mm -hmm. PS model is no different. Whether the diagnosis is autism or ADHD, or no matter what historical factors we think have caused this kid to have lagging skills and unsolved problems. Here's what's interesting. Um, while I think it is crucial to know that a child has a trauma history, that's a causal factor. Um, I don't know how much we can do about that. I know what we can do something about. Lagging skills, unsolved problems irrespective of how we think the kid came by those lagging skills and unsolved problems. Do I want to know that somebody diagnosed a kid as autistic? Sure. Do I want to know that a, somebody diagnosed a kid with ADHD? Sure. But I'll tell a quick story. I was at an autism conference in Denmark pre-pandemic, and a mom in my audience raised her hand. She, I was going through the lagging skills and unsolved problems, and she raised her hand and she said, but I, but I found my daughter's autism diagnosis to be very useful. I said, that's good. She said, but I think what you're saying is that my daughter's autism diagnosis doesn't really tell me much about her specific lagging skills and unsolved problems. I said, right. She then pondered it a bit further and said, and I think what you're saying is that once I figure out my daughter's lagging skills and unsolved problems, I'm going to find that that autism diagnosis wasn't telling me that much at all. I said, probably. So I'm not allergic to diagnoses. I just find that they don't give me the information I'm looking for. I'm not allergic to contemplating potential causal factors, trauma, exposure to substances in utero, brain injury, gene pool, economic deprivation, I'm not allergic to thinking about those things. They may well be contributing, but what can I do the most about? Lagging skills, unsolved problems. So I'm not being dismissive of those diagnoses or causes. I'm just saying those aren't our primary focal point, And quite frankly, that's just practical. Mm. Mm. Oh, wow. I mean, I knew you were going to answer it that way, but it just keeps coming back to me. There's a real fixation, um, and I, I don't know if this is the same in the US, with diagnoses leading to funding, leading to a teacher's aid, leading to the supposed resolution of all these problems. And it very, I mean, I've, you just constantly hear stories that those things do not result in improved outcomes or, you know, reduction in these problems or anything. It just it just seems to be, again, that cycle that doesn't lead to anything good. Well, it's also a structural factor that points us toward diagnoses and behaviors. Now, I'm a practical guy. If I think a kid needs help and there's money that could help the kid or a paraprofessional that could help the kid, and it's a diagnosis that I need to render to get the kid that help, 
Great. I'll render a diagnosis, right? Good. Now let's get practical. That's practical. Now let's think about what we really can do something about lagging skills and unsolved problems. Because quite frankly, beyond getting the kid some structural help that they need, some service that they need, the diagnosis isn't actually going to take us very far. We still have to get down to the next level of analysis, lagging skills, unsolved problems. Now, if the system wasn't set up that way, quite frankly, we could just start with lagging skills and unsolved problems. And my estimation is we'd be fine. And wouldn't we save a whole lot of money? Because these things cost money. Gluing a teacher's aid to a child for you know a few hours a day is, is expensive for the department to pay for. Whereas if we're using this, this model for everybody, then you know surely there's some cost savings there as well. One would imagine, I do think that there are always going to be kids and classrooms where an extra caregiver is going to be a good idea. Yeah, yeah. I wish that it wasn't a, I wish that was just a practical consideration rather than uh, something that we need a diagnosis for. Yes, right, okay. Um, that's what I wish. I, I don't, I'm not sure that we're going to be putting power professionals and ed techs out of business anytime soon. Classrooms being what they are. Get, you know, 30 kids in a classroom, an extra caregiver in that classroom would probably go a long way. Having diagnoses be driving that ship is the part that does make a lot of sense to me. Okay, so now talking about implementing, how do schools bring in CPS? Can CPS operate alongside PBL? And if children are attending behaviorist therapy such as ABA and social skills training outside of school, Will that interfere with CPS in the school setting? Uh, that's that's three questions. At this age, I'm not going to remember all three in the same sitting, but I'll, I'll start with the, the, the recent ones I can remember. Sorry. This is either my age or my hard drive being full <laughs> or both. I don't think social skills training outside of school is going to interfere with anything. If there's social skills training going on outside of school, uh, I don't see that doing any harm. How much good it will do remains to be seen. How much harm will it do? I don't know. I don't see social skills training doing a lot of harm most of the time, right? Um, so I don't have a huge problem with that. If parents outside of school are being trained to focus on a kid's behavior and modifying it, that could interfere. Mm -hmm. If PBIS in a school, I remember the second question, I think. If PBIS in a school is pushing people to focus on behavior and modifying it, that could interfere with CPS. If PBIS is only being used for its organizational features, tier one, tier two, tier three, PBIS will not interfere with CPS. I will say this, in the schools that I've worked with that are implementing CPS, the tiers eventually lose their meaning because if you're implementing CPS at tier one, you're not going to have as many kids at tier two, and you're not going to have as many kids as at tier three. But if people want to keep using tiers, whatever, I wouldn't be the one to stand in their way. I just find that once you're implementing CPS, the tiers don't have any nearly as much meaning as they did before you implemented CPS. And now the only one that I seem to be blocking on is whatever question number three was, and I think it was question number one. It was because you went backwards, which is a good strategy. Um, purely it, a memory issue. <laughs> no, it's fine. How do schools bring in CPS? That's you know, a big question, I guess. <laughs> well, it can be something as simple as a book study. 
Uh, for example, a book lost at school, tens of thousands of books of schools have begun with that book, right? Okay. Uh, Lives in the Balance provides training to schools in Australia all the time. We have some Australian colleagues who do some of those trainings, and we have folks on this side of the pond who do some of those trainings. Um, people aren't going to be hurting for training if they need it. We'll meet the need. But the best place to start is a book study with the book Lost at School. Get yourselves familiar with this way of thinking. Um, Read about an imaginary but really composite school that reflects many schools that I've worked with and many educators that I've worked with and what they went through as they were moving from one mentality to another and what that looked like. That's where you start. But if people need training, they just need to contact Lives in the Balance and we'll make sure they get it. Mm, yes. Okay. Well, we'll definitely be talking about that with um, New South Wales Department of Education. I'm going to move on and we can, all of this will be unpacked as we, we finish up now. We've got a couple more questions. Academics working in the field of behaviourism like to describe it as evidence-based. We've just briefly touched on that. Is there evidence for the effectiveness of PBL? And what about CPS? And can you specifically um, highlight how many schools are using CPS around the world and just describe a little bit in a little bit more detail about where it is um, being used, where it is being implemented and the effect of that and the data to support that? All right. So now we'll see which of that I can remember. We'll go with the recency effect again. Uh, I have no idea how many anymore, how many schools are implementing the CPS model. I have no clue. Um, mostly because schools are implementing the model without me knowing about it. They're just using the books to implement the CPS model. Um, so I have no clue. All I know is that people come up to me all the time and email me all the time that I've never heard of or met and tell me they're implementing CPS in their schools. I have no clue. That's what happens when you put a book out, right? It is very popular here in the United States, Canada, very popular in Sweden, Denmark, increasingly popular in Norway, increasingly popular in Australia. We have entire school systems in Sweden that have been implementing the CPS model for many, many years. Clearly, we have a lot more work to do to get the word out there and to get people trained. I'm sure there will be a lot of that going on well past my lifetime, but at least we got the ball rolling. Yeah, you did. You did. What an amazing legacy to leave. But I think we just had a few questions. Uh, one that I remember that you asked is, CPS is evidence-based. Rewarding and punishing is evidence-based. Yes. So, but okay. here's what I would say. We can no longer be satisfied with merely improving a kid's behavior. If the problems that are causing those behaviors remain unsolved, it's not enough. So yes, while behavior management strategies are evidence-based, they are evidence-based for improving behavior. I am not okay with that in isolation of solving the problems that are causing those behaviors. It's not enough. Mm, okay, okay. I know that in Australia anyway, that the PBIL sort of program, if you like, that is has been implemented to some degree within schools has been intimate has been implemented with varying fidelity and the results are that 
there's really nothing positive that has come from it in terms of reducing exclusions, reducing violence, you know, bringing the suspension data down. Our suspension figures are going up. Restrictive practices, all those things, they're not, it's not having that effect that, you know, we know that the, that the teachers want and also obviously parents want it to have to actually connect kids to learning and being in the classroom and feeling safe and things, work, you know, being positive and moving forward in that way. Do you have data on how CPS is superior to PBL in that way? We've never matched up CPS against PBIS here in the yeah, States. Sorry. Yeah. Head to head. But I am among those who are also skeptical of whether the current ingredients of what you call PBL, what we call PBIS, are going to get us where we want to go with our most vulnerable kids. Mm. Um, so I'm a skeptic. I don't have head-to-head -head research CPS versus PBIS um, and probably don't intend to do that study. Quite frankly, PBIS is so ubiquitous here in the United States that what we're mostly trying to do is help people implement CPS within PBIS, especially the three tiers. But if they're implementing the more behavioral aspects of PBIS, then we're helping them move beyond those to practices that they can still implement within the three tiers. So they can still say they're doing PBIS. It's just that they're moving away from focusing on behavior and modifying it and toward focusing on problems and solving them. And there are many, many schools that have made that transition. So we're not throwing PBIS out with the baby in the bathwater. How about this? How about we say we're improving it and getting rid of the parts that um, weren't helping our most vulnerable kids in the first place? Wow. Okay, great. That's, thank you very much. That's, I know that that's what people are going to want to know and, and have clear in their mind. And my final question is, you've been involved with the Kidman Centre in, uh, at UTS here in Sydney, where there are psychologists working with the CPS approach. Are there any schools already using CPS? You've said that there are using CPS in Australia, you know, how many, or do you know how much it's being used, um, and what needs to be in place to ensure CPS is implemented with fidelity in Australia? You may have already answered some of this, but if you've got further to say on that, that would be very helpful. Thank you. There are a handful of schools in Australia, and I, I wish I had looked this up before we started. I intended to. I, I won't be able to tell you their names at the moment. There are many schools that are just getting started with it. Um, there are a handful of schools that have been doing it for two or three years now um, with good effect, with what we usually see when CPS is being implemented. We describe a 12-month process for implementing the CPS model well. The first four months are us getting eight to 10 people in a building, a school, good at the model first. We don't start big, we start small. We've learned over the many years that we've been doing this that Unless we have people who are good at the model in the building, the model's going nowhere in the building. And I would say that's true for any model, right? That's four months. We're getting eight to 10 people in the building, leaders included, good at the CPS model, good at the assessment tool, good at the problem solving process. The next four months are those eight to 10 people demonstrating the problem solving process for people who were not involved in that initial training showing them how it's done and often doing it with them sitting in 
and with one of the students of the people who were not involved in initial training. That's four months. The final four months is having the people who were not involved in initial training start using the model, but with coaching from somebody who was involved in the initial training. That's four months. 12 months later, we don't just have eight to 10 people in the building who are good at the model. We have an entire building that's good at the model. That's the hope. It depends on how hard they hit it at a school, how committed they are to it. Obviously, they could take longer. We've just recommended people hit it hard for a year. Why take three years to accomplish what you can accomplish in one? But along the way, we are also helping schools look at their structures. Because as I intimated earlier, there are many structures in schools that will point us toward more traditional ways of doing things. And so often the structures have to change. And one of the biggest questions, so, so as to point us toward different ways of doing things. Here's, here's the worst case scenario. We get an entire school good at the CPS model, but all of the policies still point them toward what they were doing a year earlier. Not good. So we're trying to change the structures as we're going along. We're not waiting till the very end to try to change those structures. The biggest questions most educators have is time. Mm. How are we, where, this, this guy, where does he think we're going to find the time to do this? It, it is going to take some organizing. It is going to take some coverage. It's going to take a look at, but the biggest issue is, are we committed to solving problems with kids in our building and to creating structures that permit us to do that? And if we do that, we will end up saving a lot of time. Think of all the time we spend doing things that aren't working for our most vulnerable kids. This model is not going to take anywhere near that much time. So that's a very general overview of what look like. If you hit it hard, you're in decent shape in about a year. Good. Well, I imagine that's pre-answered some of the questions that um, I know that the Department of Education here will have for you. And it's certainly not sounding like there's anything there that would be a huge objection or should be a huge objection. I mean, why? Why? You just keep asking the question, why would you continue on when there's something that's better? So let's, we know, I know we're going to meet with them. And I hope they're going to listen to this as well before they meet with you so that they've got a little bit of background and they're ready to go and they're ready to accept change that parents most definitely want and I know teachers will want this as well. So thank you very much for sharing it with us. My pleasure. And I'm really looking forward to meeting with them. I am um, such a fan of the educators I've worked with. They have taught me so much. I have such enormous respect for what they do and the pressures that they work under. Um, I think no one is more mindful of how difficult it is to change gears in a school than I am. What I know is that we've helped a lot of schools do it. It wasn't as painful as they thought it was going to be. And most of them, most of them cannot imagine the way they used to do things once they implement this model. Take some courage, take some training, we can do it. Oh, we can, we can. Music to my ears, Ross. Thank you so, so much. And 
And I just cannot thank you enough for even coming on my podcast. I can't believe it's happened. Brilliant. Thank you. Is there anything else you'd like to say? Any parting comments for Australian listeners before we sign off? No, I know that Australia has had a really hard time with the pandemic, just like we have here in America. We're trying too hard to get back to normal too quickly. We're seeing we're seeing just out of control behaviors in, in our schools with more kids. The word grace is really crucial here. Um, right. I, I was speaking at a uh, one of the few in-person presentations I've done since, during the pandemic was at a special educators conference in New York quite some time ago. And I expressed to them my concern that we would try to get back to normal too quickly. And it's happening. But one of the things that they said to me, the, the title of my talk was Lessons Learned During Trying Times. And we were talking about what was good during the pandemic. And here's what they said to me. They said, we, this is 200 educators. I'm going to summarize what the, special ed directors, I'm going to summarize what they said in one sentence. They said, we were given permission to give every kid what, to meet every kid where they were at, no matter what it took. Why aren't we doing that all the time? Exactly. So we should be doing it all the time. There's a lot of kids who haven't been in school for two years. There's many second graders who have never been in school. Yeah. We've got to have a little grace here. This was a pandemic and might still be. Let's keep our fingers crossed that we're through the worst of it. Those are my final words. Wow. I love those. Thank you very much. And we are experiencing the same thing here. So I know those words will fall on um, ears that need to hear them. So thank you very much. Thanks so much for inviting me to do this. You're very welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I'll uh, sign us off now and I'll press stop if you could just stay there. (laughs) Thank you, everybody, for listening to Square Peg Round Hole. Acknowledgements. Thank you to Carla Cushell of Carla Cushell Creative for the podcast logo and the website. Editing by Matt Cushell. Images and episode quotes are the work of Jazzy C. Music is also by Jazzy C. Finally, a big thank you to my friends and family for encouraging me. As always, thank you to my partner in everything, Ash Cushell. And remember, just be nice to one another.